This is our fourth message in this great passage that lies on the other side of three chapters about our sin. It's a very rich passage. It's a very needed passage. It's a passage that we are drinking in, the, the scenery that, that, that it provides for us. I, I looked this past week... Um, at, at how long it took others to get through this passage of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through, through 26, and I'm happy to say we are right on track. Um, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached six sermons in these few verses. It took John MacArthur five verses, and C.H. Spurgeon managed it in six sermons as well. Of course, MacArthur can preach five sermons on one word. So I don't know why he was so quick through this passage, but he was. And everyone can agree that this is not just a passage that you just drive by. It's, in fact, it would be hard to overstate how biblically significant Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 actually is. It, this passage has been described as John 3.16 in theology. You know John 3.16, everyone does. But do you know this passage? Because this passage is, the, it's, it's the details of how God so loved the world. It contains a synopsis of the Christian faith. It, if, Paul, uh, if what Paul says here is not true, and it is true, then there's no point to the New Testament. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said that you could stop reading Romans right here if what Paul says in these Five verses is not correct. Uh, there's no point to go even any further in, in the book if it's not. If there's not a righteousness provided by God apart from the law, then, then you do not have Christianity. And we've spent so much time in verses 1, or chapter 1, 18 through 320 that laid out our sin so clearly. It, it's nice to pause and talk about uh, our salvation. But I think even more importantly, this passage is, is desperately needed. I'm going to show you why it's desperately needed. I, I think, I find, that many churchgoers believe the gospel, but much are not able to articulate it. Many are not able to articulate it with, with clarity. In fact, uh, some don't know even the difference of what we talked about last week, uh, being made righteous versus being declared righteous. R.C. Sproul said, today a person can call themselves an evangelical while at the same time denying the historic and biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is the very definition of an evangelical. They do that because they don't know this passage. So they don't know the difference between a Catholic or a Protestant. If that's you, don't, don't be embarrassed. Uh, you might be new to the faith, or you might be late in life, but at least you're here learning. You're, you're listening to Romans 3, 21 through 26. The ones I worry about are, are the ones in that condition, and they don't even know enough to be embarrassed about it. And it's not just those who sit on the pew that need what Paul is drawing us into here. It's also pastors. It's also church leaders that that struggle with that. In the same sermon, uh, R.C. Sproul told the story about a meeting in Washington, D.C. around the year 2000, so this is 22 years ago now, that had the leading evangelicals uh, of the world. So it's not just the U.S., but it's, it was all over the world. And 
in one of those leaders in this, in, in this meeting was asked by someone in front of the press, what is the gospel? And he said, this man, whose name I will not reveal to protect the guilty, <laughs> he was quiet for a while, and then he said, well, it's the, well, well I mean, it's the, it's the good news uh, that, that Jesus can change your life and uh, that, that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And he said he stumbled around for a few more minutes, but it was clear that this man didn't have a clue to what the meaning of the, to the, meaning of the gospel in biblical terms. He went on to say we live in a time when churches, the church has turned to methods, techniques, and programs seeking to discern which programs will assist us in growing the membership of our church, and we are looking for power every place except where God says that He has invested it. If you want to unleash the, the power of God unto your people, to your church, understand that God has chosen to invest His power in the gospel. And I'm afraid that, that we know that that's the right answer because we know uh, Romans... Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. But we don't understand the gospel deeply enough to really trust it. I, I mean, I know that's true, that the, God has invested His power in the gospel because I'm not a progressive. I, I'm not a liberal. I'm not a theological liberal. I don't believe in the social gospel or, or whatever else it is. But in practice, we think that we need to add a little something to it. We, we think we bring a little something to, to the table. And in doing so, like the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, we actually empty the, power, empty the cross of, uh, of its power. And so the question this morning is, could you answer any better than that evangelical leader in, in Washington, D.C., 22 years ago? If you had to answer the question, what is the gospel? Could you do it in biblical terms? We call ourselves people who are evangelical, meaning people who believe the evangel, the gospel, people who rest their entire hope of heaven on the good news. But if someone would ask you to explain the good news, what would you say? Would you stumble a little bit? Would you be like that, that fellow? Well, I mean, it's the, it's the good news. It's, you know, it's good, and it's news, and it's about Jesus. But what did the but now of verse 21 actually bring us? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Uh, what did the but God of Ephesians 2 verse 4 do for us? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with, with which He loved us. I mean, what is the good news? For people professing universal guilt that have been condemned in God's court, like in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, with the evidence presented against us, people who have no defense, where verse 19 says, every mouth is closed uh, by the case against us, and then the verdict is given that all the world is guilty before God. I mean, what would you say? It's the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Because you've heard that in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 15, is it asking Jesus into your heart? Surely it's centered on the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But what we want to know is what do those events do? What, 
I mean, how does God accomplish something for sinners through that? And why does he do it that way? Or, or to put it plainly, could you explain John 3.16 in biblical terms? What's the substance? What's the matter of the, of the gospel? And that's what Paul is plunging us in, in these verses, over and over and over, like linen fabric in a vat of gospel-colored dye. And I hope by the time that you're done with this passage that that biblical pigment just permanently stains your soul so that you never look at the gospel the, the same way again. Because this passage teaches the, the good news that God's righteousness has come and it's come apart from the law and that it's realized in the person of Jesus, it's promised in the Old Testament, it's gained by faith alone, meaning without any mixture of, uh, of merit, it's available to all, it provides justification now where you're declared right by, with God in spite of your sin. And Paul will say today, it's all by grace. And that last statement is what we're, we're going to look at this morning. Salvation comes to us by God's sovereign, undeserved, unmerited, unfathomable, amazing grace. And that's embedded in the midst of this outline that we're working through. Three ways God's righteousness is revealed in the coming and the cross of Jesus. God's righteousness is publicized in the, the coming of Christ. It's provided through the person of Christ. And it's proven or demonstrated through the, through the cross of Christ. Look, if you would, at verse 21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. I mean, the, the subject matter is, is given right here. The subject matter is the, is the righteousness of God. And so this first way that it's revealed is it's publicized in the, in the coming of Jesus. And Paul says it's apart from human merit, it's realized in Christ, it's promised in the Old Testament, and it's available to all through faith. We've already covered that. Secondly, though, he says the, this righteousness is, is revealed. It's provided in the, in the cross of Christ. It's all needed from God and all gain it as a gracious gift. Look, if you would, at verse 22. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul declares here all people, Jew and Gentile, fail to fulfill their purpose in creation. They, they fail to display God with their lives. They, they fall short of that goal. And, and then God promises and provides a salvation for, for all people by His grace alone. Look at you at verse 24. This is where we left off. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All need the righteousness of God, all have sinned, and all gain that righteousness, that righteous declaration, as a gracious gift from, from God. So Paul starts with our law word that we, we spent all last Sunday uh, defining, being justified, he says. All have sinned, and now if coming to salvation, all will be justified those of us, those who believe upon Christ. It's a word that has the same root of righteousness, the, 
The term means a right standing before the bar of justice. If righteousness is a noun, being justified is a form of a verb. It's, it's something that happens in your salvation. You need God's righteousness, and this is how it's, how it's gained, how you gain what you need. It's a judicial declaration. It's the, a verdict given in a trial. It, it means to be pronounced just, meaning... a Righteous status, in this case before God, when, when you have an unrighteous status before God. The declaration is by a judicial act based solely upon the merits of Christ. And he come, tells us it comes to us by faith. It says on the basis of Christ's merits, God declares righteous those who come to Him by, by faith. And we learn that righteousness is alien, it's something outside of us, outside of us as a sinner, not something produced within us. It's, it's passive. It, it, you have nothing to do with it. It comes from God. It's, it's forensic, meaning it's a judicial declaration. You're not made righteous, you're declared righteous. And you're declared righteous right now. There is therefore now no condemnation. And so you currently possess peace with God, eternal life, and that you can then serve Him without fear. But then Paul goes on to show us how that justification comes, the manner in which it comes, and then the means is by grace. He, look at verse 24 again. He says, being justified, that's what happens in your salvation. You're declared right with God, by God, right now. You don't wait until the end. It, it happens now. And the, the manner in which you're, you're declared justified by God is freely. As a, as a gift by His grace. That's the means. You're, you're declared just by the means of His grace. And Paul's already said in verse 21 that this righteousness that comes, comes apart from the law, meaning apart from human merit, and now he describes that it comes by grace. It's the opposite of human merit. So it's like saying the opposite of what he said earlier. And he packs three very potent words together to describe the origin of, of this justification. He, he says it comes freely, it comes by grace, and it's not just grace in general, but it's God's grace. He says it comes by His grace. Three little words that, that come together. He, he starts with this adverb, freely, which, which carries the idea of w without cost or without merit on, on your part. And then he gives us another one of those phrases that, that states his point. He says it's, it's freely by his grace, meaning God's grace. That's the means. And in the context, he's talking about justification. We're justified by the manner and means of free grace. That's what God says here. Meaning it comes in the manner of a gift, which is why some of your translations will say freely, and some of them will say by a gift. That, that gift is an outflow of God's grace toward us. That's the, the free, unmerited favor of the generous goodness of God. And it's toward us, sinners. And Paul starts with this word freely because it looks at it from our perspective. He's already said that it's not from our perspective of works, of merit. It's, it's from God's perspective of, of, a, of something that's undeserved. It's the same word. This, this idea of freely, this adverb, used not as an adverb, but differently, but, but it's the same word as, as used in John 15, 25. 
But they have done this to fulfill the, the word that, it is, uh, that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. There's the word, without cause, meaning undeservedly. They, they hated Christ undeservedly. And Paul says you receive this justification without a cause on your part. It comes freely. It comes as a gift. It, it, it means gratuitous. It's, it's gratuitous grace. If you can say that, it's like redundant. But, but that's what Paul's doing here. He's being redundant. So you, so you understand. He doubles down on this idea. And I'm afraid whenever we hear that word grace, because we've sang about it and, and, and we hear free, we, it, it can go right over our heads because it's very difficult for us to separate human merit even with the word gift. I mean, think about it. We give gifts to people that we like or that we're related to, right? I mean, we, we think people deserve a gift, even though it's a gift. I'm giving you a gift. I'm not expecting anything in return, but I'm giving that gift to somebody that, that I know. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you gave a gift to your enemy? Don't do that. You give gifts to your children. You give gifts to your grandchildren. You give gifts to your nieces, your nephews, or brides, or mothers, and you typically know those people. I mean, it's freely given, but, but it's connected to, to, to something. It's connected to, to their worth or their relationship to you. I mean, it's kind of like the word gratuity. Um, you know, whenever you go out on a, uh, to a restaurant, you're supposed to, to give a tip or gratuity. You do that to a waiter or a waitress that, that's done a really good job in serving you. But when was the last time that you, you thought about it like it was optional? I mean, when was the last time you didn't give somebody a, a gift, a, a tip, I should say? It's, I mean, it's kind of expected, right? I mean, if you don't leave gratuity, you're a cheapskate. And as hard as servers work, you probably are. But let's just say they did a really good job, and so you don't leave them 15%, you, you give them 20%. Still, your idea of gift, of a gift, or gratuity in that case, is something that they've earned, or something that they've deserved. It's, it was for their extra effort. It, it, was, it, it was in, it was compensation. It was extra, but it was for effort that they, that, that they put forth. But God here gives the gift of righteousness, the declaration of righteousness freely, without cause, undeservedly. And he gives it to his enemies. I mean, if we are, if you want to use that analogy of waiters, if we're waiters or servers of God's image to the world, we bear his image, and so we're to, we're to serve that image up to the world, uh, we don't deserve any gratuity. We won't even bring the food out of the kitchen. And when we do, we, we taint the food. You see the way that that changes your view of grace and how, how the way our thinking can, can be imported into this, into this idea while Paul doubles down and, and says it two different ways. I mean, I can't overemphasize this point enough. I mean, there's nothing more important than, than for you to get this. I mean, God's act of justifying has nothing to do to any extent or degree, with anything that we are or do, which would, which would predispose God to act this way toward us. I mean, God does not give you salvation because of who you are, because of what you will do, or what you will become even after He saves you, or any other thing. 
And that's why the, the common definition that people give for God's foreknowledge uh, falls apart. There's a common definition for foreknowledge that people use to try to take the emotional edge off of election. And it goes something like this. God foreknew you. He, he looked down through the corridor of time and he saw that you would exercise faith somewhere down the road and therefore he chose you in eternity past on that, on that basis. God foreknew what you would do. First of all, there's no such thing as eternity past. I mean, eternity just is. There is no past in, in eternity. And God's decrees are, are eternal. They just are, just like God. I mean, His decrees are fulfilled in time. They're carried out in time, but they're not predicated upon time. The other problem with that is that would mean that God would learn something. I mean, here He was, and, 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 and he, he would learn what you would do in the future, and having learned that, then he would make his own choice in the, in the past. And there was never a moment that God learned anything. God doesn't gain information. But even more problematic, what the definition says is God planned to give you grace because of what you would do in the future. You would be smart enough. You would be humble enough to choose him. So he planned to give you grace. That's what that definition implies. And it's, that's the exact opposite of grace. That's merited favor. That's not unmerited favor. You would have faith where others would not. So God set His love on you. But grace is not based on anything. Even the choices that you would make. Grace is unmerited. Grace is free. Grace is God's to give as God pleases. Grace is not constrained to any extent or decree by, uh, degree by anything that we are or, or do. And, and even more amazing than that, because it's just the opposite. I mean, the, uh, we compel the opposite judgment from the Lord. And the whole world is guilty before God. So it's not just God choosing to give the, the standing to a neutral person, justification. It's God giving justifying grace to a sinful person, a rebellious person. And when you get that, it changes everything. I mean, Kent Hughes told the, the story of Mel Trotter, who became a great influence for Christ in Chicago in the first half of the, the 20th century. He said, as an alcoholic, Mel Trotter had fallen so low that on the evening he finally stumbled into the Pacific Garden Mission and found Christ... He was under the influence of alcohol that he had purchased with the shoes taken from his little girl's feet as she lay in her coffin. He took the shoes off his own daughter and hocked them to buy booze. And he was intoxicated by that liquor whenever he came into Pacific Garden Mission, and God saved him. And so wondrous was the effect of God's abounding grace in his life that eight years later he was ordained to the ministry as a Presbyterian and became a great evangelist. Grace changes everything, but it comes to us freely. But, but what is grace? Is it a force? Is it a feeling? I mean, the gift of grace that brings justification, no less, and, and to sinners like, like us, Ivan Turgenev, the Russian poet and writer, said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. I'm <laughs> talking about himself. 
Well, a simple definition of grace is God's favor to us apart from human merit. Or you've probably heard God's grace is God's unmerited favor. And it is. It's true. Well, what Paul wants to show us here is what God does for us in that grace. What it brings to us. And grace is so much more than just a disposition of favor. Like God looks upon you favorably. It expresses itself. It acts toward us. Those acts are unmerited. They come freely. And here is John 3.16. Here's the theology of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that what? That He gave. There's the act. There's the expression of of that love. And the word grace is used all over the Bible. Colin Cruz counted in the Old Testament. I didn't. In the Septuagint, he said it's used 132 times in 128 verses. It's found another 100 times in 95 verses in Paul's letter alone. Paul uses the term grace in 95 verses in all of his letters. It occurs 24 times in the letter to the Romans. It's by far Paul's most repeated word. And because that, that's true because it's the most significant theological topic for the Apostle Paul. And most of the time when the word is used in the Old Testament, it's, it's used for the Hebrew word meaning favor. God's unmerited favor. God's favor and it's unmerited. That's where we come up with that definition. And when people find that favor, it usually means that somebody's acting to meet their needs or to deliver them. And so when you put all that together, God's grace is not just a feeling or an inclination towards someone. It's expressed. God's goodwill or favor expressed in His actions is a good definition. And that's where Paul comes in. Because Paul loves to define all of those actions that that grace brings. Like like what he's doing here, like in our verse. God's justification toward us is an act of, of His grace toward us. We stand justified before God because God acted on our behalf to make that happen. And then Paul keeps adding to this this list of of goodwill. He said back in in Romans uh, chapter 1, he said that God's expression of His favor in Romans 1 verse 5, uh, Paul was chosen for his ministry as an act of God's goodwill toward him. He was called by grace. In Galatians 1, 6, that's up on your screen, it says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He says the calling of all believers to faith in Christ is is grace expressed by an act of God. You were called by by God out of darkness into light. That was an act of grace. He goes on to say in Romans, in our verse, in Romans 3, it's, it's an expression of His grace toward us, our justification. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, he says grace brings God's empowerment to believers. I mean, all of these things are are the things that grace brings to us. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace and strength, perseverance of the saints is based on grace. Romans 4. Paul says, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that, what's the result of it being by grace? So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. It's it's grace that expresses itself in, in guaranteeing heaven, securing your hope. 
In chapter 5, he says, Through whom also we have obtained an introduction by, by faith into this grace in which we stand. It, it's a believer standing before God. That's what it brings. It also brings redemption in Christ. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. It's an expression, expresses itself of God's choice of a faithful remnant in the same way then there would also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious, gracious choice. And finally in chapter 12, he says it's a, God's gift of ministry is an act of grace. Since we have gifts that differ according to grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. I mean, God's disposition toward us in grace brings to us the gospel, salvation, justification, perseverance, strength, assurance of a standing before God, redemption, election, and a ministry to serve Him. I mean, those, Paul, I could even go farther Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There is no more wonderful word than grace. It is the unmerited favor or kindness shown to the one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. But as amazing as all of that is, even as I walk through those verses that you may have a hard time even keeping up with some of them. You, you know, as amazing as that grace is, human beings have a common problem. We're resistant to believe it. And we like the term grace. We like to sing about it. We put it on T-shirts. We, we put it in front of our churches. Grace Bible Church or our programs, grace-based parenting, Sunday school classes, grace life. But deep down, we're half-hearted believers. I mean, if you built a working definition of grace based on your real thoughts about how God works, we think, you would think that we're more cooperators than receivers. I mean, we know we need God's help, but we don't like all grace. I mean, even when you hear an unvarnished definition of grace from Scripture, it explained, if we're honest, we're even suspect of it. I mean, some will even outright reject it. Some will say there's no way that grace could be all God and, and, and none, of me, uh, none of me. I mean, one writer said that most Protestant Christians are not Pelagian. They're just related to his cousin Semi. I mean, most people don't reject the word grace. They're just uneasy when God talks about the details of it, what it brings. I mean, test yourself. I mean, don't you think? Can it really be that one-sided? I mean, just believing in a person, in his work? I mean, don't I have to do something? I mean, there's no strings attached? I mean, don't you think, where's the catch? It's because there's something in all of us that wants to add our effort. It's part of the fall. We do not like being dependent. Uh, we don't like coming to the party without a gift. We don't like being on the dole. We don't like getting welfare, even from God. So when God presents His salvation that way, we're suspect of it. And we want to add to it. I mean, okay, okay, 
99.9% God, but 0.01% me. We're like the woman that W.P. Mackey, the Scottish preacher, in his book Grace and Truth described. Someone was sharing Christ with a rich English lady and was telling her that every person is a sinner, this evangelist was, and she replied in somewhat of a shock, ladies are not sinners. Not to be deterred, the evangelist said, then, then who are? And the woman paused for a minute and then replied, well, just young men in their foolish days. And when the evangelist explained the gospel in further detail and said, if you will be saved by Christ, then you will need to be saved just as your footman and those young men by the unmerited grace of God in Christ's atonement. She said, well then, I will not be saved. And you would never say those words. I will not be saved. But that's exactly how your heart is pre-programmed to, to respond. You don't want to hand out. You know why? Because you really don't think that you're as bad as you really are. <laughs> Which is why Paul grinded us into the dirt for three chapters before he ever brought us here talking about grace. You want help from God, but deep down, you, like me, think that if, we'll just, if He'll just get me on the right track, if He'll just give me a push, then, then I can take it from there. You see, it's only the person who sees that they have absolutely nothing to offer God, usually because they've been humbled by their sin, that sees grace not as something repulsive, but something that's absolutely necessary. It's like water in the desert. Offer a man a perfectly cooked steak after he walks out of a fine restaurant after a meal and he'll respond completely uh, different, differently than, than a man who hasn't eaten for a week. You can offer that man a piece of five-day-old bread and he'll be thankful. And many people fill, are filling themselves with all the world has to offer every single day and so they're not hungry for Christ. And it's only uh, once that poison food that they've been eating makes them sick that they see what, the God, uh, what, what God offers to them in, in grace. And so the Apostle Paul says when it comes to salvation, you know, not, not only are you the receivers of God's welfare, but, but He's the one who goes and gets you out of the house and brings you to the check line to get it. <laughs> and it's His grace. It comes freely. It comes by grace, and it's His grace. Look at you at verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift, or freely, by His grace. And he'll go on to explain further through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. But it's His grace. Leon, Moore, uh, Leon Morris pointed out that in the Greek, the, the position of the pronoun His is there to put emphasis on the word. It, it links God to the links to God in the previous verse. It's like saying, it is the grace of none other than God Himself that brings salvation. That's the idea. I mean, he's saying it's His grace. God is monergistic in salvation. He's not synergistic in justifying you. Monergistic meaning mono or one. There's one person who's working in your salvation. It's not synergistic where two people are cooperating uh, together, synthetic, we, we, you hear the, the prefix sin, meaning with or together. Synthetic is a compound, or the synoptic gospels, they're, 
They're dependent. They're together. There's only two ways that's possible to be, to be right with God. Either, either God alone working or you cooperating. And biblical Christianity is that, that there's, there's one who's at work. All other religions and perversions of Christianity has man cooperating with God. And yet only the gospel says that God does all the work. And you receive his benefits by his grace, through your faith. You're synergistic in sanctification, but not salvation. In sanctification, you're growing, you're reading, you're working, and God's giving the increase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, of His good, good pleasure. You cooperate with God in your sanctification. But salvation is all God. It's all His work, because He's the only one who can do the work. And that's the dividing line of the gospel. Whether it's by knowledge or law or religious favor or keeping some moral code, only repenting of all of that and casting yourself only upon God and God alone can you find the way to heaven. Doug Moose said that's the, those two things, the justification being only God and sanctification being man, is what the, the, the Jewish people of Paul's day had backwards. They confused salvation and sanctification. They thought they were made right with God by the works of the law. Instead, they were made right with God by faith. <clears throat> but then once they're made right with God, He gave them the law to keep and be a blessing and grow. As we used that analogy before, of the, uh, they turned the railroad tracks that the, the train of sanctification is supposed to run on and made it a ladder to try to climb into heaven. And Paul says, you're not going to get anywhere trying to use the law to get to heaven. In fact, you're not even good law keepers. You're bad ones. You, you don't keep it all the time. You leave parts out. You, you, excuse, a, you excuse the way. You, you even tell people to do parts of it, and you don't do it yourself. We said in chapter 2. But justification comes freely by the grace of God. John Murray said the free and sovereign graciousness of the act is the positive complement to that which has been asserted in verse 20, that the, from the, apart from the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. So what about you? <clears throat> you need grace? Free grace? All grace? His grace? Then you can only look one place to get it. And that's Jesus Christ. I think there's a very interesting passage in James. So I want to close by asking you to turn to James chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4. But I think James actually brings all of this together in... in application. Okay, it's, it's all grace. It's, it's freely. I need it. So if it's all God, how would I ever get it? Look at James chapter 4, verse 1. You, you know these passages, but watch how it, it links from this passage about quarrels and fights to grace. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your, your passions are at war within you? Your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you, do not, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Your passions are at war within you. Your desires are unfulfilled. You covet. You don't receive because you want to spend it on your passions. I mean, James is explaining, just like Paul, where the problem lies. It's not out there. It's in here. It's within us, our own desires, that war against God. And then he calls us out. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? How am I a friend with the world? Because these desires are within you, and you fulfill those desires. When you have that desire, that's exactly the opposite of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God, uh, uh, who wishes to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose that the, that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the, the Spirit that he may dwell in us, and then comes our but God word. Look at verse 6. But he, that's God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, James says, here's our problem. Here's the condemnation of our problem. But God gives more grace. It's, it's grace that's greater than the problem within us. Greater than our condemnation. Greater than, 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 than the issue that brings all of that destruction. God gives greater grace. Greater than, than all of our sin. But notice what else it says. He gives it to the humble. God resists the proud. And He gives grace to the humble. Do you need grace? then humble yourself before God. Because God gives grace, not to the proud, not to those who think they can add to it, not to those who think it's grace plus something. God gives grace to the humble. How? Look at verse 7. How do you humble yourselves? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll free from you. flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you in salvation. He says, repent and come to the Lord and believe and you'll find grace because God gives grace to the humble. You're humble enough to see grace, to receive grace. It's there to receive. It's God's to give. And He gives it to those who realize that they have nothing to offer. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for Your grace. I thank You even when it makes me feel uncomfortable. I thank you when it challenges me, and I think, yes, yes, Grace, I need you, I need you, bud. I need, to, I need to, to repent a little better. I need to pray a little harder. Of course, repenting and praying and reading more is, is how I grow. That's my duty. It's my responsibility. But Lord, in coming to you, I'm deaf, dumb, and blind. And it's only by an act of your free grace where you see me in my sin and you pursued me and you drew me to yourself 
And you showed me Christ. And I believed. And you set my feet on a solid rock. You put your spirit within me. And I pray that you would do all of that for anyone here this morning, Lord, who's outside of the kingdom. And for any Christian who's inside the kingdom, who might be trying to add to grace, that you would just strip that away and remind them this morning, you give grace to the humble. And you're against the proud, including those who want to add to grace. And I ask it all in your precious name. Amen.